0: Welcome back to True Crime Trine, the podcast where the planets align, and two friends again this week meet to talk about true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit that we can fit into this podcast. I'm your host, Sarah. And I'm Meredith. And this is episode 54. Woo! Hannah's still on hiatus, so we decided to bring this week kind of a twofer. Yeah. Collaborated, kind of not, on some cold cases. It's a bifurcation. Woo. Is there any
1: housekeeping? Uh yes, we do have a little bit of housekeeping, so I've Just been playing around with our analytics because, like, I check locations, but I actually figured out that you can, like, go in and check a little bit more in detail. So I will have some statistics in some upcoming episode because it's kind of fun to look at who's listening to which episodes. Oh, cool. But I noticed that we have a listener in Ashburn, Virginia. So, hello, Ashburn. Thank you so much for listening. They've listened to a ton of our episodes, so we are so thankful for that. And we hope that you will connect with us at some point. And just a reminder, we do have stickers, so if you'd like one, definitely hit us up. And then also, we have an uptick in our Australian and our New Zealand listeners. Ah. So, hello, hello. And then Norway is still rocking our analytics Thank you again so much for listening. We truly appreciate all of you guys that take the time to listen to our
0: weird bullshit. Yes, thank you.
1: And then we have exceeded 4,100 listens.
0: So, yes. What was our, we had like some sort of benchmark or like goal to reach.
1: I think we were trying to match PAO's listener or listens within a year, but I don't think we. I mean, because they've been on for almost three years. Yeah, that's a lot to catch up on. Yeah, but we're pretty close. (laughs) I think we might like hit the mark or surpass the mark maybe in another six months.
0: Okay, not bad. It just goes to show that sometimes plans maybe should be made. Yeah. (laughs) Not always optional. Not when you've got a Capricorn in your midst. I know. It does
1: give her a chance
0: for, you know, some
1: relaxation.
0: Agents of chaos. Yeah. That's good.
1: (laughs) But like we said, we've got the twofer for you tonight. Do you want to go first, Sarah, or do you want me to
0: hit this? I think your story is going to be a cooler one to start on, and then I'll just fill up the rest of the time with what I've got. Okay. Sounds good.
1: Tonight, I have for you the mysterious disappearance of Dorothy Forstein. Ooh wait no i don't know that name
0: (laughs) i'm just like ooh,
1: but it is mysterious this story sadly is painfully cold Mm. dorothy or dora as she was referred to has been missing for 72 years (gasps) five months and 28 days
0: oh that's oh my gosh
1: yeah generations So we are going to head to Pennsylvania, and for the most part, we will be in Philadelphia. Dorothy, or Dora Forstein, her maiden name was Cooper, was born in 1909. And I really tried to do some super sleuthing here, especially with like genealogy websites, but... Dorothy Cooper is a pretty common name, evidently, especially in 1909 and specifically in the state of Pennsylvania. Oh. I'm not going to guess, but there was like maybe 15 options and I was like, that's just too many. Oh, wow to bring so we're just gonna go with 1909 is when Dora was born. Because of that, I don't have a lot of information about her childhood other than in high school, which was between like 1923 1927 that she met a boy named Jules Forstein. and oddly, I was able to find out quite a bit more through Jules's genealogy research. But evidently, Jules and Dora were high school sweethearts, but they ended up breaking up. So Jules was born to Solomon and Molly Forstein on March 20th of 1906 in Philadelphia. And after Jules and Dora broke up, he would go on to marry a woman named Molly Melliton in 1928. And I did find it a bit odd that he married a woman with the same name as his mom. (laughs) They were spelled the same as well. And Molly evidently back then is spelled M-O-L-L-Y-E. Y-E. Molly. Which I thought was (laughs) pretty interesting. But Hmm. Jules worked as a clerk for the city of Philadelphia. And during his marriage to Molly, they would have two daughters. Myrna was born sometime in 1931. And then Marcy was born on July 4th of 1940. I love all these M names. That's so cute. There was one article that referred to Marcy as Nancy, but like 98% referred to her as Marcy. So we're going to go Marcy on this. And sadly, Molly passed away during childbirth with Marcy. Oh. So now Jules is widowed and he's got a nine-year-old daughter, Myrna. And and a newborn. A brand new baby girl, Marcy. And... I can't even fathom how difficult this would have been, especially during that time. Yeah. You know, to be a widower with these two young children. However, it would not be very long before Jules and Dora would actually reconnect. And Dora (laughs) was described as this happy and outgoing woman who was completely devoted to Jules's two young daughters. Oh. She was static to be a mom. So that's pretty cool.
0: And with none of the pain and risk of childbirth.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some side effects to childbirth. <laughs> but Jules and Dora were married in 1942. And I did read that Dora ended up adopting, legally adopting both of Jules's daughters. And it does seem from everything that I read that she was really Quite a doting mother to the two girls. So life was going well. They're married. They've got the two girls. And then Jules was promoted from a city clerk to a city magistrate. And I wasn't quite sure what the difference between a judge and a magistrate was. So a little bit of a sidetrack. So both a judge and a magistrate must have a law degree. They have to have passed the bar and then have some experience as an attorney. Oh, wow. And a magistrate is a judicial officer appointed to a district court, but they have less authority than like a circuit court judge. And Their power is limited in scope. So typically, they're going to oversee cases that are like disputes between two parties or contempt of court or enforcement action. So it kind of feels like maybe they would oversee almost like small claims court. Interesting. Okay. And then a judge would be the one who would do criminal cases and constitutional type cases and then they also are seated to oversee like actual trials okay also in 1943, Jules and Dora welcomed their son, Edward. And from what I found, it appeared that the Forsteins were a very lovely and well-respected family. With Jules's promotion, the family was able to move to 1845 North Franklin Street. It was said Sweet. to be a three-story home in an affluent neighborhood. And I was kind of hoping to do some more property record research, which I actually loved doing. But it appears that this area has been redeveloped. So I did a little mini search, but the online records that I could find didn't actually go back that far. So I think that would be research you would have to do, like, maybe in person at the assessor's office.
0: Yeah. Let me look at this super old paper. and. Yeah, it's super cool, though. But yeah, so I don't live near Philadelphia, so
1: that's not a
0: possibility. Imagine, like, you take a vacation to go to a faraway city, and, like, the first thing that you do is stop by that office. You're like, I need all of your old paperwork, please. (laughs) Can I scan it? I would do something
1: like that. I definitely would. I've been to Philadelphia before. That'll be your light reading for the trip. (laughs) Yeah, my light reading. It's like this case of paper. (laughs) (laughs) I do it, though. I've been to Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a city that is rich in history. It's got some oh, yeah. beautiful buildings, but also has really great Philly cheesesteak sandwiches. So,
0: Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. I've never actually had one, and I probably never will at this point because of the whole gluten thing, but man.
1: Maybe you could nibble the middle of someone's and not the bread. Or
0: I'll just like bring my own bread. Bring my own bread. <laughs> like, bring a wrap and, like, put the good stuff in the middle of the wrap. Isn't there melted cheese, though? Like, I gotta, yeah. There's some recon that has to happen there.
1: There is. So, one of our friends had grown up in Philadelphia, and he was like, the only legitimate Philly cheesesteak has provolone. Ooh. And we had another friend that was like, the only legitimate Philly cheesesteak has cheese whiz. Cheese whiz! I know. Oh. When we were in Philadelphia, we went to these two competing Philly cheesesteak stands. They're like, we have the best one. No, we do. But they're kitty corner from each other. Oh, my God. And so that's like, what other Philly cheesesteak stand? But we went in and we sampled one of each of the sandwiches, one with provolone, one with cheese. Whiz, from each of them. And I mean, they were all delicious. And it was very hard to walk back to the train after that because we oh, were so full. But, <laughs> anyways, Philly uh, cheesesteak sandwiches. Maybe Hannah can throw that in for a food pairing. Yeah. So, a little bit more about Dora. She was a very pretty woman. She was about five foot two, about 125 pounds. She had strawberry blonde hair and blue eyes. She was very friendly, very chatty, very outgoing, and sadly, this would change drastically on Thursday, January 25th of 1945. Jules is at work, and Dora had dropped the children off. Myrna was 14, Marcy was 5, and Edward was 2 with a neighbor so she could go into town and do a little bit of shopping. Friends and people from around the neighborhood would recall that Dora was her normal, chatty, friendly self, and she was laughing and smiling as she made her way through town making her purchases. It was evening by the time she got home, and since it was January, it was dark outside. Yeah, Dora made her way to the front door, she unlocked it, and then she was viciously attacked and beaten from oh behind. No. It was violent. Oh, As Dora struggled with her attacker, the phone in the hallway was displaced from its base, and the operator actually heard the commotion. Oh, can you imagine? Right? Oh, gosh. And notified the police. So, police arrived, and Dora was found unconscious, bloody. It was terrible. And emergency personnel transported her to a nearby hospital. Wow. A neighbor, Maria Townley, reported seeing someone walking behind Dora on the street, but it was dark and she didn't really get a good look. And it didn't raise any suspicion for Maria because, you know, they lived in this really nice neighborhood.
0: Yeah. They didn't think that there was anything like that. Yeah. Drink break.
1: (laughs) Woo! Dora suffered a broken nose, a broken jaw, a fractured shoulder... And a severe concussion. Jeez. She told the police, quote, someone jumped out at me. I couldn't see who it was. He just hit me and hit me, end quote. Captain James Kelly, who was a Philadelphia homicide detective, was assigned to investigate the case. Now, Dora lived, but Kelly believed that this was an attempted murder. Yeah. There really was no motive. So there was nothing taken from the Forstein home. Not a robbery. Yeah. Dora was not sexually assaulted and she was really well-loved in the community. So it wasn't like she had any known enemies who had it out for her. Right. Kelly did investigate her, Dora's husband Jules, but was able to confirm his alibi that he had been working. So Kelly's next theory was that it was possible that someone who had appeared in Jules's courtroom had had a dispute against him or a decision that was made in their case and sought some sort of revenge against him by attacking Dora.
0: Oh, that's so fucked. I know, right? I hate you, so I'm going to go after your wife now. Ugh.
1: I know, it sucks. But this theory did not pan out. There was no evidence. There was no leads. The case was cold. Okay. Life after the attack proved to be quite challenging. Not surprisingly, Dora was no longer that bubbly and friendly and outgoing person. She was more of a recluse. She no longer went out after dark. I don't fucking blame her. Right? She frequently checked to make sure that all the doors and windows in the home were locked, and then she would go back around and, like, double check. So there was a lot of anxiety and probably some depression in there as well. Yeah. And while her physical injuries were healing, her emotional injuries would take several years to start to subside. Oh, Eventually, Dora would become more relaxed and she would start to leave the house again, but she was just never quite that same, like, super outgoing, friendly, fun person that she was before. She lost her bubbly personality. So, four years, eight months, and 23 days later, Dora Forstein vanished from 1845 North Franklin in the middle of the night. Just walked out. No. Oh. But vanished. Vanished. Mm -hmm.
0: Was there signs of a
1: struggle? We'll get there. (laughs) Okay. On Tuesday, October 18th of 1949, Dora was home with the two youngest children. Marcy was nine and Edward was six or right around this age group. I don't have their birthdays. I just have kind of the year they were born. Right. And then the oldest daughter, Myrna, she was like 17, 18 at the time. Yeah, because she was nine months or nine years older than the baby. Yeah. Yeah. And so she was actually out with friends, and then she was going to stay the night at a friend's house. And then Jules was working, and then afterwards he had to go to the like this banquet for work. Oh no, they have to feed me. I know, right? <laughs> so... Jules phoned Dora at home before the banquet, just kind of like checking in. Hey, I'm leaving work, but I'm heading over to this function. And the final words Dora said to Jules were, be sure to miss me. Oh, which is so, so sweet and so, so sad. At around 9 p.m., Dora called a friend to confirm their shopping date for the following day. Mm-hmm. And then Jules returned home about 11.30 p.m. He found his two young children crying, huddled together in an upstairs bedroom.
0: Oh, no. The children sobbed, Mommy is gone. Oh, my goodness. But, like, she wouldn't have just left them there then on her own accord. I mean, you
1: wouldn't think so. But so Jules was stunned, but he was not quite alarmed yet. He kind of assumed that Dora maybe had run over to the next door neighbor's real quick. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of looked through the house, but nothing seemed out of place. Dora's purse and keys were still in the house. And he had himself unlocked the front door when he arrived. And there were no other doors or windows that were open. So it had still been locked. Exactly. Ooh. Nothing besides Dora was missing. Okay. So when I was five... (laughs)
0: I'm already laughing.
1: (laughs) We lived in this like split level house and each level had like a full kitchen bathroom, right? Mm -hmm. And my mom rented the whole house, but we lived in the bottom part and then she rented out the top half to kind of help with the rent, right? Yeah. So... I'm five. I'm like in the living room. I'm playing. And my mom, it was just me and my mom who were home. And my dad and my brother were gone. And my mom says to me, she's like, sit tight. I just I got to run upstairs to go get rent. And I'm just going to be a few minutes. So just keep playing. And I'll be right back. It's in the same house. But you yeah. had to like walk outside and then around to the front to, be able to get back up again. Yeah. Essentially we're in the same house. So she's not like leaving me by myself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: However, when you are five, any amount of time can seem like an eternity. Time
0: doesn't matter, yeah. It's like you might as well be alone for a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of like how pets act. They like they've never seen you in in weeks. Where when the you leave fuck for have the you store. been? Yeah. <laughs>
1: so I'm like playing with my stuff and then it like dawns on me like, I'm alone. Mom's not here. Mm-hmm. I like went outside and I walked around to the front and I don't see my mom anywhere. So like I'm panicked. I'm like, oh my God, she's gone. Right. Yep. So I beat feet back down into the house and I'm crying. I'm super scared. I think something Terrible has happened to my mom. So, oh. what's a kid to do? Call 911. I did. Oh no. Oh no. So, I called 911 to report my mom missing. Oh, and no. naturally, the dispatcher was super concerned. Right? Because you're like five home alone. Especially when I told her that it may have been an hour or two since <gasps> I had seen my mom no. Uh Uh-huh. And so she did her best to, like, calm me down. And I'm pretty sure I said something along the lines of, like, I'm sure someone must have taken her. I think my mom's been kidnapped. Oh, my gosh. No. (laughs) I can't imagine, like, what the dispatcher's thinking, right? You know. And so, like, I'm, (laughs) I'm five. And this is kind of a little bit of karma for my parents because they never filtered what like we watched growing up so we oh, could yeah. watch whatever movies they were watching or whatever shows they were watching so That's where you got that idea that she was kidnapped from. Right. So by the time I'm 5, I've already seen like The Godfather, I've already seen The Shining, <laughs> I've already oh seen like Gremlins, so I have this very active imagination and you know i'm a gemini so i'm super chatty and i have been my whole life
0: yeah now that now that i have you on the phone dispatcher she might have been gone in a whole hour i know who's to say
1: so i'm talking to the dispatcher and my mom walks in and she's like who are you on the phone with who are you talking to (gasps) oh no and my mom was mortified And so she explained to the dispatcher that literally she had been gone like five minutes and it was in the same house, essentially, right? She Uh just ran upstairs to collect the rent. And thankfully for my mom, she's an Aries. So she's very, you know, firm. Yeah. (laughs) In how she communicates. So the police and CPS were not called or notified. She was like, absolutely not. (laughs) Right. So it's something that we can laugh about now. But you know, the point is, is that time is very irrelevant to children, especially when they're young. Oh my god, yeah. And then also kids really have very, very vivid imaginations. Truly. And this kind of plays into the next part of the story. (laughs) So, Joel started to call around the neighborhood, but no one had seen Dora, so he's, like, getting really, really worried. And after about an hour, Dora still has not, like, come home, so he's, like, freaking out now. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know what else to do, so he called Captain Kelly, that detective who had worked on Dora's assault case four years earlier. Oh, yeah. So clearly this is super suspicious. So Kelly had asked some of his officers to start inquiring about Dora at the local hospitals and morgues and even hotels in the greater Philadelphia area. And other officers were tasked with doing like a door-to-door canvas, but no one had seen or heard anything abnormal that evening. So then Kelly and a few other officers went to the Forstein home to investigate and Kelly had talked to Jules and then Kelly was like I want to talk to Marcy so Marcy's nine so a little bit older than five but still but still a
0: child yes very young maybe a little bit more articulate and can recognize certain times of days and stuff sure so Kelly interviews
1: Marcy and what she says is so bizarre and just bone chilling oh So Marcy said that about 15 minutes before her dad got home, which again, this is time is relative in this, right? Yeah. Who knows how long that time span was, but in her account, it was about 15 minutes before her dad came home. She heard a noise and she woke up and to her, it sounded like someone was coming home. So I think maybe she thought like it was her dad coming home, right? Sure. That seems reasonable. So she's curious and she's ready to investigate. So she peeks out her door and peers down the hall to her parents' room. She sees an unfamiliar man standing next to her mom. No. Who is lying face down on the floor. No. Mm Mm-hmm. Marcy moves a little bit closer and because she's this brave Little girl, she says, what are you doing? And the man <sighs> calmly replies, quote, go back to sleep, little one. Your mother is all right.
0: Oh, quote. my gosh.
1: And then he pats her on the head. No. Like she's Susie Lou Who in The Grinch, right? Oh, my gosh. Go back to bed, right? Go back to sleep. Don't worry about it. And then this strange man picks up Dora's lifeless body Hucks it over his shoulder and carries her down the stairs. No. And then Marcy sees him walk out the front door and then she hears the lock click. So he locked the door. Oh. Okay. Okay. And then that's it. They're just gone.
0: Oh, Jesus.
1: Yeah. How did he get a key? Yeah. We're assuming he has a key, but Marcy's like totally freaked out. Yes. What the fuck just happened? And so she goes and she wakes up her little brother, Edward. They're freaking out, right? Because they're now home all by themselves. There was an intruder in their home and mommy is gone. Oh my goodness. It's just crazy shit. So Captain Kelly, he's interviewing Marcy. So Marcy says, no, I've never seen this man before. I don't know who he is. And Kelly asked about like, you know, well, what did he look like? And so what she came up with was that he was white, maybe 40. And again, like kids determination of age is also something. Oh,
0: yeah. Like you could be 15, 20. And they're like, what are you 30 or 40? 40. You're a hundred years old. Yeah. If you've got any wrinkles whatsoever, they're like, (laughs) ancient, you're the ancient one. (laughs) Seriously. Rude. So what else she noticed about
1: this man was that he had a brown jacket and then a peaked hat.
0: I had to look up what a peaked hat is. I wasn't sure. Is that like the ones that have like a pinch in the, like how like a fedora does? No? Okay.
1: No. So this is like a military style hat. It's also, I think, referred to as a saucer hat. So if you mm. envision like a military man or woman in their their full on like dress uniform yeah. and that hat that's got the bill
0: and then it's like, it's peaked and then it's like Oh, a peaky blinders. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's like not quite newsboy, but like not a beret somewhere in there.
1: Yeah. Okay. Got it. So these are commonly worn by military personnel, law enforcement personnel. Ooh. Right? In their like dress blues or dress whites or whatever they call those things. So anyways, so this hat is kind of a, a big deal. Yeah. And- at this moment, Jules and Captain Kelly are like flabbergasted. They're like, "What the fuck? Is this like actually true or is this like Marcy just making up a fucking story because her mom left or because, because something she's else nine, happened?" So, she yeah. can be believable. They're like asking themselves like, "Do we Really believe that, like, this mysterious man just walked out of their home with Dora slung over his shoulder. And no one else in the neighborhood saw. Right? Marcy said that she was wearing her bright red silk pajamas. So, like, not only is this, like, she's wearing these, like, bright red pajamas, but, like, she's hung over the shoulder of this dude. And he's just walking down the street with her or, like... Mm -mm what the fuck, right? Yeah, no. So again, it's 1949. They send Marcy to psychiatrists to determine if it was possible that her account was made up or if it was possible that it was true. So there are several tells that can indicate if someone is being truthful or untruthful, but one of which for being untruthful is that they can't quite keep their story straight. Right, it changes. Yeah, little details kind of are flexible in their story when they tell it.
0: Or if it evolves over time too.
1: Exactly, or they add new details. Yeah. And sometimes it's they're telling too many details or maybe not enough details. So Marcy saw several psychiatrists and they all agreed that she was being truthful her story never changed it was solid she's like this is what i saw this is what he said like matter of fact this is what happened so captain kelly was like well shit we don't have much else to go on so what do police do they start with the spouse so right. he did confirm Jules's alibi that he was at this banquet and Jules was cleared. But there was nothing else to go on. So they had no evidence, no eyewitness statements, nothing. So the case stalled. And then trying to like drum up some sort of lead or something like that, Jules offered a $1,000 reward. That's a lot of money. It's about $12,000 today. Oh, Okay. As a reward for information leading to Dora's whereabouts, like no matter what, we just want to know where she is. And a man came forward and claimed that he had seen someone that kind of matched Dora's description
0: Mm -hmm. across
1: the Delaware River in New Jersey, but this was not confirmed. Again, Captain Kelly thought that this might be associated with Jules's profession as a magistrate. So, Jules's case history was reviewed, and then one name kind of popped out, and they were like, let's check this out. So, in September of 1944, a man named Morris Anmuth, who was 29, he was a textile salesman, he had gathered with a ton of other people at the Philadelphia railway station to protest the 1944 Republican presidential candidate Thomas E. Dewey. Oh jeez. He was scheduled to give this speech in Philadelphia. So police were deployed to control the crowd, but a riot ensued. So Ameth was actually pulled from the crowd and he was arrested and charged with you know participating in a riot resisting arrest disorderly conduct and then he was fined ten dollars and then released so ten dollars back then is about 163 not a terrible bail but like not great and and it, it was more like they're not like gonna pursue like criminal charges on this you're just gonna get the fine and it is what it is so yeah they released him, and then just quick side note, in 1944, this was the 40th presidential election, and it was held on November 7th, and the election took place during World War II, and the incumbent was Democrat President Franklin D. Roosevelt, and he defeated
0: uh-huh.
1: Republican Thomas E. Dewey, and he won an unprecedented fourth term in office. Wow. So, anyways, little history for for you guys there.
0: I usually am not much of a history person, but that's hmm,
1: okay. Ameth filed an assault complaint about the two arresting officers, and another magistrate, James McBride, held the officers on a $1,000 bail, which is about $16,300 today. Anmeth got a $10 fine, and now he's holding these officers on this $1,000 bail pending an actual trial. Uh. But Jules came in, so I think Jules was probably... More tenured or whatever, but Jules came in and he had overturned McBride's decision and dropped the charges completely against those two officers. So the theory was that Anmuth had targeted Dora as a way to retaliate against Jules, but this was never proven. Again, the case stalled. They don't have any probative evidence whatsoever. On January 1st of 1956, Jules Forstein, at 49, was found dead at his 1845 North Franklin Street home. Oh my gosh. According to his death certificate, and I was able to find this doing some genealogy research, his cause of death was hypertensive heart disease and then subsequently coronary occlusion. And it took me forever to be able to read that doctor's handwriting.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But I
1: I figured it out. But essentially what that is, is he died of a heart attack. Oh, geez. I was sad, though, because they didn't have the, they didn't have, like, homicide, you know, natural or suicide checked on the form. Oh. But, you know, everything I could read, this was an actual natural death. But Okay. So, Jules has passed, and then Myrna, the oldest daughter, she assumed custody of her two younger siblings.
0: Oh. And how old is she by then? She would have been about 25. Okay. Not an old maid, but you know.
1: But by this time, she was married. Oh, she was. Okay. Yeah. In October of 1957, Myrna, who is now Myrna Shapiro versus Myrna Forstein, petitioned the courts to declare Dora deceased. And it didn't really say why she opted to do this. Her dad had passed away already. I don't know if she just needed some closure, or closure for the kids. Yeah. But Judge Charles Klein presided over the hearing, and then Myrna and a homicide detective named Captain David Roberts would testify about, like, all the effort that went into trying to locate Dora and to kind of prove their point that, like you know, she's made no phone calls, nobody's seen her, nobody's heard from her. I think today it's like there's no bank activity, there's no debit card activity, yeah, there's no, no cell phone, cell phone, activity. Activity.
0: yeah, all the things that you go through to be able to show, like they haven't proven themselves alive in the last X years, so therefore. Exactly. And so back then, it's more like,
1: you know, Myrna and this detective are testifying that like, this is, these are all the steps that we went through to find her or, you know, and, and at the same time, she never came back. She never contacted us. So, right. Judge Klein did rule in favor of the petition and he ordered Dora's death to be set at October 18th of 1956, which is seven years after the date of her disappearance. Okay. Okay. And so Myrna had filed this almost a year later, but he like backdated her death. And so from what I could read, like seven years is kind of the rule of thumb for most areas, but some are upwards of 10. Oh, wow. Yeah, so if somebody goes missing and you want, you know, you need to get a death certificate for them, then you would have to wait the seven years. And I think we talked about this in the Connie Quedance case where Connie had filed, you know, several years later to be able to get the death certificate to collect insurance. But there was no mention of insurance or anything like that. So my assumption is that this was just kind of closure for the kids. Right. So that is the mysterious disappearance of Dora Forstein. And there are so many theories about what happened. Oh my gosh, I bet. I'm just going to go through just a couple of them. Number one was Jules did it. Hands down, he did it. He's connected to law enforcement. He's a part of the judicial system. Like, he did it and they helped him cover it up.
0: Oh. Well, then how would she have recognized, like, a man I didn't know in a strange peaked hat? Mm Mm-hmm. How, yeah.
1: That's where that theory kind of loses a little luster. But the second one was that Jules hired a hitman, potentially, like, a police officer with Mm. the peaked hat, right, to murder Dora. And then when the first attempt was not successful, he was like, hold on a few years and then we'll try this again.
0: Oh, Oh, shit. Right? Ooh, I don't like that at all. No.
1: The third was that Dora had, you know, she's this very cheerful, bubbly, sweet person. And so I'm guessing she's kind of, you know, never met a stranger. Um, So another theory was that she had some sort of stalker.
0: Oh, she's just too cheerful and drew the wrong eyes. God, that's so awful.
1: She was a pretty girl. So, you know... People are weird, even back then. Yeah. And then the kind of the next theories are like Dora had a jolted lover or Jules had a jolted lover, right? Oh. And then another theory was that Dora ran away with a lover. But I just, I don't think that one's really plausible because she seemed like she was a really good mom. And I don't think she would just leave her kids unattended. I don't think
0: so either. I don't. Yeah, that one doesn't pan out for me.
1: And then another theory was that she just ran off. And then one of the other theories was that she was fleeing an abusive home. But again, I don't think she would have left without her kids. So
0: yeah. What about her... Like, what was her state of mind like after her concussion? Was she still all, like, totally, completely there? Or was she having any issues after that, like, sanity-wise?
1: I don't think she had, like, sanity issues. I think she was just super anxious, as anyone would be if they had been attacked in their own home. I mean, she was still a very doting mother. She still took care of the household. It's just she was, like, fearful to go out. She yeah. just kind of wanted to just stay home and care for everybody in the house, uh, which is understandable. I mean, you know, your house is supposed to be this safe place. So, you know, she just kind of retreated back into it and tried to make it like this safe place. But it, I couldn't find anything that said like she was loopy or was suffering any sort of like mental disorder or PTSD or... situation or. yeah.
0: Nothing that would make her like run out of the house and like get lost and go missing that way.
1: No fight or flight type of thing, or just like confusion, or you know something like that. You know how dementia patients yeah can sometimes just forget like what's going Where on. Where am I? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I said, she's never been found. Her remains have never been found. Oh my gosh. Like there is no fucking trace of Dora. So it is. And I think will remain an unsolved case unless at some point somebody finds remains and they do some sort of DNA testing for it. Yeah. So I'm driving to work today and I drive a very rural route to Mm. the office. And in my brain, right, I'm thinking...
0: (laughs) I wonder how many shallow graves I'm passing. Oh my gosh, yes. I always think that when I'm on a, a like a road that's like literally no one's on it and it's miles and miles of unexplored forest.
1: Right? I'm just yeah. like, how many bodies are we passing on our daily commute? Anyways, that's just my <laughs> twisted brain, but
0: <laughs> Mine too. Woo! Morbid thoughts.
1: That is what I have for you this week on a cold case. This one just happens to be very, very cold. What do you have
0: for me? My nose just got like really itchy all of a sudden. I've been allergic to my cat today too. Okay. Adder, where is he? I went more literal with my cold cases and I'm going temperature cold too. Okay. So I'm going to be talking about missing people of Nome, Alaska. Oh, that's fucking cold. There are some really... Interesting big stories out of this, but I wanted to leave those for more of a full episode. And so I'm just going to briefly touch on what they call the 24, but really there's kind of 33. Anyways, I'll get to that. These are some, not all, of the missing people of Nome, Alaska. Okay. So Nome is, to say the least, a very, very isolated place. There are no roads that connect Nome to the other major cities in Alaska. So you're flying in you're flying in. There's no railroad either. And oh, they do have, Okay. yeah, so they do have kind of a ferry, but it's, it's not like a normal passenger ferry where there's always like, I think a lot of traffic on it. I think it's mostly just, here's supplies. Is it a barge ferry? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it literally is like, you have to wait for the next flight on one of those small planes to be able to get anywhere if you want to leave town. Okay. The population in 2020, they did a census and it was 3,699. Okay. So that is absolutely teeny. That's a, less than a 20th of um, the town that I currently live in. Yeah. Yeah, small town. Mm -hmm. It used to be the most populated city in Alaska, though, when it was first incorporated back in 1901 because of the gold rush. So it was a destination. And that might just barely explain how people actually face the extreme winters there, because even back then, I can't imagine they had a whole lot of, I don't know, good heating conduit situations. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Comfort. Comfort. In the early 1900s, the population soared, uh, soared to nearly 20,000. The gold rush, yeah. Yeah. So another thing that Gnome is linked to that I always associate with is the Balto story, but really the Iditarod. Yay! So this is the dog sled race that carries on the tradition of that brave relay team of dog sled teams basically running this serum up to Gnome to be able to treat diphtheria. Okay. So this is a bacterium that infected... It- caused an epidemic in 1925, this massive blizzard had rolled through and really just grounded all of the planes that would have been able to deliver the serum to the town, um, okay. which was being ravaged by that infection. And so with winter only going to be getting worse, they were like, all right, here we go. <laughs> so they, the people banded together and made it happen so that they could save people.
1: That's amazing. Our dog, Roxy, that passed away in 2020, oh. she was a Malamute mix. And so oh my gosh. The first time, like, we got, like, a big snow, we noticed that she would, like, dive into the snow and then, like, tunnel. Yeah. And so I was looking it up, and I thought it was pretty interesting that, so, like, the difference between huskies and malamutes, because they're both sledding dogs, right? Yep. But you will typically see a Malamute as the lead dog because they are a little bit heavier and a little bit broader-shouldered. They're like
0: a snowplow.
1: <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah. So what they do is they cut the crust, is what they called it. <sighs> and so they basically cut down and then create this path for the huskies who are kind of like the glide dogs. I mean, every now and again, you'll see a husky at the top of the pack, but more yeah. often than not, you'll see a Malamute. But I just found that pretty fascinating on how they did I that. didn't
0: know that. I just knew Malamutes were usually like bigger and beefier. Mm-hmm. And they're a little bit more mellow than Huskies. Not mine. <laughs> oh, okay. Because like all the Huskies I've seen have been like little demons. Oh, and they the are, And the Malamutes yeah. that I've seen around town here, like there's even a Malamute that used to be a regular at this beer bar that I would go to. Okay. And it would literally just like lay on the cool cement floor like, ugh, I can't be bothered to move. Like lay across it and because it's such a big dog, like people have to step over this dog yeah. to get to the bar. <laughs>
1: Our sweet little Roxy, I think she was mixed with a coyote because she was just oh, crazy as shit. Just a little spaz. Yeah. That's cute. <laughs> but she loved to cut the crest. She, anytime we got snow, it was like her favorite thing. Awesome.
0: Gnome, the Iditarod, Gold Rush, Alaska stuff. Yeah. There are only about 1,300 full-time sworn-in law enforcement officers patrolling the entire state, which is 663,268 square miles total. It's bigger than Texas, isn't it? It's, it's massive, yeah. Yeah. Each officer then, if, if it worked this way, would be in charge of more than 500 square miles on their own. <laughs> Holy fuck. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of coverage. That's less than, I mean, like, per mileage, I I don't even know. And plus, like, you can't get to some of these places, so it's not like you can just drive your whole
1: unit. Yep. Crazy pants. Not
0: great. So all of this adds up to essentially a rugged, crazy wilderness that, again, the majority of it goes through an intense seasonal change in the wintertime. And in Alaska total, more than 60,000 people have gone missing since 1988. What? 60,000? So by the population, that's like one in every 250 people that go missing. Oh my God. And out of the less than 4,000 people that are in Nome, 33 have gone missing since 1988. 19, sorry. Yeah, 1988. Damn. That's only how many years? 33? 4? 34. Yeah. So like a person a year on average. Damn. With some years being worse than others. And that's only the reported ones. Yeah, that's scary. Mm-hmm.
1: I was watching this one documentary about Alaska, and they were talking about how like a lot of missing persons aren't technically missing. They just like are like, "Fuck this! I can't do this anymore," and they just leave. But because they didn't make a lot of friends or know a lot of people, they like the people that are still there, like, are like, I don't, I didn't know who their family was to like call and check on them. So, like, some missing persons could potentially just be people that were like, I need to move to Arizona. Yeah. (laughs) Where it's warm.
0: (laughs) Right. But I feel like, I mean, in modern day too, they could be like, okay, this person disappeared, but they also showed up in Arizona and they would be able to match something up. Sure. From the ones that I'll be reading off, um, these 33 that have been missing.
1: They're just gone.
0: They are gone. And some yeah. of them are like kind of obvious and some of them are very confusing. Okay. So the way that I kind of thought about this, and it's, it's a little bit backwards, but, and I really, really want to tell this story, but I don't have time to tonight, really. But <laughs> you might have heard a <laughs> story of this young indigenous woman named Sonia Ivanoff or Ivanov. She was reported missing after her roommate, also another young indigenous woman, she noticed that she hadn't come home after they'd gone out for drinks a couple nights before. So they'd gone out for drinks on August 10th, 2003. Sonia hadn't been feeling well and decided that she was just going to leave early, but didn't want her roommate to stop festivities just because of her. So she walked home alone and she ended up not coming home. So when the roommate got home and thought maybe, I don't know, maybe she met someone and She'll just touch base because it's 2003, so really they haven't – they don't have – maybe they don't have cell phones or if they do – There's not communication towers. They don't want to burn minutes. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. It's, it's Alaska. They might not even have communication towers. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to go into a ton, a ton of detail. It's horrible and tragic and infuriating given the mistreatment of the indigenous people by police officers. Yeah. I say plural, but really, it's one of them. This Owens guy, and I'd rather, I'd really rather save it for a full episode to give okay. the attention that it deserves. No, that's cool. But the one thing that I wanted to emphasize is that in in this small town of Nome, with a small police force, you might think that the statistics don't include the probability of there being a monster there, and there certainly was. Okay. And so we I mean even with that we don't know what other atrocities that this that this particular murderer committed in the early 2000s much less if there are others because this place seems to kind of draw the crazies. Okay. I mean Alaska is known for Robert Hansen. Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, I can just dive right in. There's a ton of names and not a whole lot of backstory to any of them and okay. I could dig and Maybe find an extra sentence or two, but nothing, not a whole lot is out there. So... No, bullet point it. It's good. Yeah. I mean, 33 people, I mean, that's that's a lot of people. Yeah. All right. So Mitchell Joseph Teven routinely sent letters to his family from Nome, Alaska after he had moved there in 1965. And these letters stopped sometime around 1973. His family members stopped getting any messages from him, and no one has heard from him since. Okay. And the last date of contact, I mean, they were just, like, approximate, because they don't, I don't know, they don't remember specifically, like, we only got a letter this date, yeah. which meant that he was alive at least on this date that it was mailed, but who's mm-hmm. to say? He was 38 years old when he supposedly went missing. Okay. And that's all there is that I from this list, at least, that I was able to find. Okay. Ernest L. Sakius was last seen leaving the Polaris Hotel in Nome, Alaska. He was reported missing on September 23rd, 1987, and then was never heard from or seen again. Now... This name, Sacchius, keeps popping up for me. It said that he was 24 when he left. And then another Sacchius that I saw, Garrett Sacchius, went missing on December 27th, 2000. Oh, so like a family. Maybe. And okay. then maybe, yeah. I mean. Okay. Okay. A lot of these are indigenous people and I don't know what their family ties are in the area, but I would assume that a lot of them, I mean, it's majority indigenous um, in Nome. So I think it was 51% from one of the census that I read. I can't remember what year. But then another September 23rd, 2019, Thomas Henry Sacchius went missing. Again, I don't know if this is a relative, but he was 70 at the time and it had mentioned that he did require a medication. So I'm wondering if maybe he was ill and kind of maybe lost his way and thought, I don't know if he was having some dementia problems and thought that that was back the same day and got triggered by that sure. and maybe went out looking for him. I don't know, but it, it just seemed really sad that this old man went missing from his a place where he could have care, senior care, and yeah. now it doesn't.
1: Well, and two, and with dementia, I mean, we don't know, obviously, if he had it or not, but like it's brutal. So, yeah. I mean, he could just have been confused, and because of the inclement weather that they have in Alaska, maybe.
0: Yeah, I mean that was a late September. Yeah. So maybe it's turning fall, starting to get cold out. Certainly could probably be cold enough that night. Yeah. To, to do overnight. Something. Yeah. There are others that go missing, you know, during boating trips or on a snow machine that you know breaks through the ice and then they go under and they can't be found. Those kinds mm-hmm. of people have gone missing. So there's Jerome Trigg that was on a snow machine that broke through the sea ice, February twenty first, nineteen eighty eight. Robert Driscoll Jr. was last seen um in August during a boating trip and his body wasn't able to be found. Okay. Then there's some weird ones. So recently. This woman named Florence, she was 33. She preferred to go by Flo. Yeah. She sounded like she was a ton of fun.
1: If your name is
0: Flo, I would assume <laughs> that you were fun. I mean, she seemed like she was. She had it together. She was figuring things out. She had been struggling with alcoholism, but was in AA. Yeah, I mean, she was she was working with it and getting better. And just a few days after her thirty third birthday, so maybe she had actually gone camping for her thirty third birthday. Okay, The middle of the afternoon, around four p.m., which in August it was August thirty first, twenty twenty. Oh, so yeah, super recently. Recent. Yeah, she walks out of her tent. And I guess there, like whoever had seen her there was just kind of like okay. And then the place that she was camping wasn't even that far from town. It was on a beach near town. Okay. Not out in the middle of any of nowhere kind of kind of deal. She left her shoes and jacket behind next to the tent, and then just vanished in thin air. Yeah. So no one's seen her since. And the, the weird thing is that she only had there's only really a couple of possible roads that she could have taken from where she was. To be able to walk away sure. and both of them one of them leads towards the airport um because it's along the coastline there and the airport has security cameras okay it's 2020 and there was nothing there's nothing there and then the other one is south and there's there's actually like a, i think a police station that has a security camera out front and there was nothing there okay and there's really only one other like one or two other roads that lead into the nowhere land inland from Nome that's on the coast okay so And she would have had to walk through town to get to those roads that lead out of town. Yeah, so they would have seen her somehow. Someone would have seen her. And it's such a tiny town. Everybody knows everybody, right? Yeah, you can't
1: not know your neighbors.
0: (laughs) So no one saw her leave. They saw her leave the tent and then poof, she's like gone. They can't find footprints. They can't find anything. So this is the part where people are like, maybe there's some foul play here. Because, like, why would she leave behind her shoes and jacket? Maybe she went for a walk on the beach and now she's just gone. Yeah. Yeah, strange. So this then goes hand in hand with um, this kid, Michael Palmer, who went missing. He was riding his bike with his friends along a nearby river when he began to kind of just Get a little bit tired. He was 15 at the time, and his friends didn't realize that he was slowing down and they just continued on without him. I think someone had even said that they thought that he was ahead of them at some point. So, oh no. He never showed up back in town at the end of their bike ride, and an aerial search was done by helicopter to kind of look for, you know, like heat and everything because he was reported missing like day of when he didn't show up. His mom was like,
1: uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And if they have the capability to do, send up those infrared helicopters and stuff like that, like right, get heat signature, he would still I mean, even as sad as or sick as it sounds, even if he was deceased, if it, they got up in the air in time, mm-hmm. he would still, you know, be omitting a heat signature.
0: Right. And I mean, this is this is June 4th in 1999. And I mean, it's it's summer. It's not like he could succumb to the elements it's nice and warm out
1: well the average temperature in june in Nome
0: is 51 degrees. oh really because i thought they had said it was like 65 that day it was actually it was a like, heat wave. warm it was warm it wasn't which was a lovely day for a bike ride i guess
1: i just i have the average temperatures per month up and
0: june is it, it's not warm folks it's not, it's warm, not warm in Nome. <laughs> no nope Anywho, yes. He went missing. They did end up finding, again, a pair of his shoes by the side of a river that they were riding by. What? So, like, why would he just take off his shoes and what, go for a dip in that cold weather? Ah, uh, No. No. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense.
1: That's bizarre.
0: Yeah. So that one didn't make sense either. And then there's a couple of others here that were noteworthy joseph balderas went missing age 36 he's an experienced outdoorsman and he went to go fishing over the weekend on june 26 2016 and so he took his truck out for a long weekend of fishing and never came back so when he didn't show up for work he was reported like hey where's has everyone seen joe around and no one had so then he was reported missing they found his truck Okay, but there was no sign of foul play, no animal interaction, no footprints or anything around. The truck didn't look like any like it had hit anything. It was just pulled off to the side of the road and not near a place where he could go fishing. So if he had gotten out okay. to go walk towards a stream or lake or what have you, like to sure. do his fishing, it doesn't make sense.
1: I've also heard that like there's a lot of fatalities in Alaska
0: via moose.
1: Like if you oh, have a yeah. like,
0: collision with a moose. Right? Because they will, I mean, not even just a collision with a the moose, they will go after you. Oh, yeah. Uh, bulls and rut or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Scary moose. But yeah, they didn't find any tracks or indication that there was any sort of animal interaction with that site. Okay. Truck was unharmed. They even brought dogs out to search, but to you know sniff out a trail to see if maybe he had gone out on foot or if maybe he was you know pulled over by somebody and Mm -hmm. like you know forced to walk by gunpoint or something but they didn't find a trail the dogs were only ever circling the truck around the area they never found any other trail that led elsewhere
1: that just makes you think, like, there was another vehicle out there. Right? yeah. And that his smell, right, because the dogs can't track once the smell is, like, put into something else and then, like, carried mm-hmm. away, so.
0: Yeah. Ugh. And this guy was engaged to his fiancée who lived, I think, in Anchorage, and she, I mean, they were, he was going to move in with her within, like, a month or two. Oh. And That's so, insane. like, had a future ahead of him, wanted to, wanted to move there and open up his own law firm, and was an experienced outdoorsman, so probably, like, would know what to do if he experienced a moose out there, because he would be out, you know, all yeah. the time doing outdoorsy stuff. Sure. So it it that just didn't make sense to them. Um, private investigators were looking into this case and concluded that there was likely criminal activity at hand, and there was a state trooper, Timothy Smith, who is quoted saying, quote, I started yelling by megaphone, we need to get assets out here quickly. And then later stated, because like there was no science, we need more eyes on this. And then later stated, something out there was wrong and raised the hairs on the back of my neck. Which is like when you get that eerie feeling. Oh my
1: god, I hate that. When it just like tingles down your spine yep. and you're just like, the fuck
0: And in the middle off. of nowhere when he's supposed to be doing fishing. Hell yeah. to the no. Alright, there are others people who have gone missing on snow machines, people who have drowned while in a boat that's capsized, which I'm wondering, I mean, if you're close to the Arctic Circle, there's there's critters in the ocean that want to capsize you. Yeah, biggins too. I feel like Alaska is the northern hemisphere's Australia.
1: That's such a good comparison.
0: (laughs) Because it's a large landmass and people just... Have you been to Alaska? I have not. I've always wanted to. Their mosquitoes are, like, this fucking big. Oh, no. Maybe I don't.
1: Um, <laughs> But if you go when it's cooler, right, it's not, like, but if you go, like, when it's warmer, like, you will see these fucking mosquitoes, and you're like, that could suck like a pint of blood. It's not a crane fly?
0: No, it's oh, not a
1: crane fly. Okay. It's a fucking mosquito. It's
0: terrible. All right. we, get, we get crane flies here that look like mosquitoes, but they're incapable of eating (laughs) no they're just doing their jobs being crane flies justina beatrice cunyak was last seen on november 18th 1990 she was 45 Okay. robert tutkailak was last seen on may 21st 1991 on a snow machine just a half mile west of the bonanza river okay he was 36 royce gaines Skeins or Scavins? like a Y or a V. Roy was presumed to have drowned while fishing off the shore near Gamble. He was 37. Okay. Kevin David Murray was last seen on Gnome's Jetty, but disappeared shortly thereafter. Um, and so Gnome's Jetty is kind of, it looks like it's, you, you can't get off the jetty and not be right on the beach in town. Okay. <laughs> and he disappeared from there. He disappeared from the jetty. Richard Guy Condone Richard and Williams, Richard and William Richards went missing after a boating accident. So Richard and William William Richards was the other dude's last name. They were both on a boat together, and supposedly there was a boating accident. Okay, Um, but they they both went missing there. Archie Carl Henry Jr. was last seen at a relative's home, and then he left and he was never seen again. He was 49. Emory F. Omiak went missing after another boating accident. And he was on a boat with four other adults and a child, and they did an extensive search and found nobody. From the boat? From the boat. So it was Emery F. Omiak. How big was the goddamn boat? I mean, probably not like a two-person dinghy. It sounds like it was, a, I don't know, like at least some sort of... And nobody
1: saw him like overboard or...
0: No, no, no. The whole boat went missing. <gasps> oh, The okay. entire boat. Okay, sorry. So, Mevlin Edward Cayutuk, um, Emery Omiak, Kevin mm-hmm. Omiak, so probably a brother or sibling, or, or brother or sibling, mm-hmm. bro- brother or nephew, some family member. Yeah. Mary Milligrok, Jean and Jason Ozena, and their boat was not found. Oh. So, weird that the whole boat is also not determined.
1: Yeah, but still, like, the, the weather and the seas out there, like... Yeah. That shit's rough, man. hmm Lost at sea.
0: Yeah, so that was actually, that was a, a weird one, because when I was looking at these dates, I just saw all these names pop up on October 29th, 1998, and I was like, what happened that day? Oh, yeah. these were all people on a boat together. And Well,
1: and yeah. historically, you hear, I mean, not just in Alaska, but just all over in all of the oceans, like back in the good old days, right? <laughs> like they lost so many ships due to really bad storms and weather. Like, I mean, and if you've been out on the water and you've experienced like even a like a minor storm, that shit's scary. Yeah.
0: Who? I would not want to be a pirate. Yeah. So it looks like Jason Ozena was twenty two and Gene Ozena was forty one, so that might have been his father. Okay. And then Kevin Omiak was the child, Aww. traveling with the five adults. Mary M- Milligrock was the the woman on board. Okay. Okay. Then we have another Sakias. That was one of the trio. Belinda J. Smith was on a snow machine, traveling with another person, and the tracks led out over the ice and then veering off of the normal trail into the open water. And Belinda was 14 years old.
1: Oh, Jesus
0: snowmobiles are very dangerous i know i'm just like why randall tory petty went overboard from his little tugboat near saint michael he was 41 Hmm. this is getting just really dark because not of all not all of them are like truly like mysteriously missing they just their bodies can't be recovered which is tragic for their families eric m Apatiki. Was traveling to Nome from St. Lawrence Island to visit his pregnant girlfriend and to, it says, cash his permanent dividend dividend fund check. Okay. And he had planned to return to his home village a few days later, but was never heard from again. And this was a case in which um, I think one of his tribe elders had actually said, don't go there. And he yeah. did. And he was never seen again. And then he never got home. They all know. Like, people go missing there.
1: Those dividend checks, it's like, from what I understand, and again, I'm like two beers in, is that each resident of Alaska gets some sort of financial kickback, if you will. Ah, okay. So we have like state taxes and stuff like that, but they also get like this dividend check for like- Hardship. I don't know if it's hardship, but it's for something. And I knew it at one point, but I can't think of it. But yeah, I had a friend who lived up in Alaska for a while. And I think, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's basically like almost like a st- stimulus check payment. But it's like they get that because they live up there.
0: Yeah. Okay. Something like that. Next on the list, I have the now Pekka hooks, Jason, Yolanda, and Leonard. So Jason was on a boat with his two children, Yolanda and Leonard, who were both 11, so I'm assuming twins, and the boat capsized in the Bering Sea five to seven miles off the shore, so they were presumed to have drowned. Another ice accident with Sanja Grace Ozena. Her boots were recovered, but they couldn't find her.
1: Kind of like the guy that had his tennis shoes. Yeah. Okay.
0: But that was on the side of a river inland. I know, but if you got a foot fetish, you got a foot fetish. Oh, ooh, ooh, yeah. John Kozuna was reported missing by a family member. He had left a note at the family cabin saying that he was going to be walking home to Nome, and he was known to go on peculiar long walks, but they never found him. Yep, they never found him. He was 55. Anthony Earl Shelp was reported missing after falling overboard from a fishing vessel at age 56, and then Alexey Alexevich Kuchnikov was aboard another boat that had capsized about 17 miles east of Nome. East. So I'm... Currently, I'm like, I'm
1: doing a little bit of a tally right now. So currently, this is a lot of male disappearances.
0: That was something that they were concerned about. Mm -hmm. So I mean, like, when I think about it, like, yeah, men are more likely to go out into the wilderness and feel like they're going to be okay. Because I don't know how many women feel confident going on a 10 mile hike by themselves in the middle of nowhere. Not me. Not me. I mean, I like hiking and I won't do that, especially not in Alaska where there's wolves, wolverines, bears, three types of bears, moose, all sorts of things to hurt yourself on. No, thank you. And it's cold. Uh, And it's cold. Yeah.
1: One of my co-workers, she went up to Alaska by herself for her birthday trip. As kind of like an adventure for herself. And one of the things that she did is she went to the training facility for the Iditarod sled dogs. Oh. And she got to meet some puppies. Oh, puppies. And I was like, cute she said it was very interesting but yeah she did
0: it by herself i mean super brave i would never never do that yeah i I mean that sounds like fun but i wouldn't want to go alone plus it's more fun to travel i feel like with somebody who also wants to enjoy stuff too because then you you can have that shared memory we did do an
1: Alaskan cruise, and part of the Alaskan cruise is you can like book packages. And my sister and I were like super, like excited. We were like, "Oh, we're gonna do the dog sled one!" So like, you can go and like learn about dog sledding, and you can meet the pups, and like have this experience. But it was like a thousand
0: dollars. Oh we my were, gosh!
1: Like, we are too poor Never mind. for that. So our excursions in our cruise consisted of finding some park in the town that we were stopped at and like stopping at the liquor store before going to the park and playing on the park
0: equipment Mm -hmm. for an hour before we had to be back to the boat. Yeah. That sounds also fun for a vacation.
1: It was fun, but like we were sad that we couldn't, like we were too poor to
0: afford the like excursions. Oh, well. We had, we, it was a good trip though. <laughs> That's good. Okay. So the FBI's BAU behavioral analysis unit was actually called in. They were looking into possible links between the victims because people were saying, like, there's something wrong here. Something's There going should on. not be this many people going missing. Yeah. And with, like, Such a weird incidence, too, where it's like they don't they don't have tracks that lead to nowhere. It's literally there's no sign of like where they could have possibly gone. So it seems like foul play. The BAU comes in and tries to look for links between victims. But really, all it is, is that they're alone on the outskirts of town at like apparently the wrong time. That is usually in warm weather, warm, warm (laughs) weather with quotation marks (laughs) around it. A lot of them are, like, during summer and fall. Okay. For the ones that actually go missing, missing and not falling through the ice or capsizing boats kind of situation, so.
1: Yeah. Why, well, it's super important for people to have a buddy system.
0: Yes. Let someone know where you're going if you're going out into the wilderness. hmm Yeah, for sure. And carry one of those GPS trackers with you. Mm-hmm. So, U.S. Attorney Tim Burgess said, quote, A concern expressed by the community is that there's very clearly some pattern to these disappearances and that there might be a serial killer. Okay. And that was in the Anchorage Daily News. So in this investigation, there were several things that the victims had in common. A lot of them had been regulars or frequently spotted, at least, at what they called Front Street's atmosphere. So they had a lot of bars on Front Street, which is kind of the street that is closest to the the coastline there. It's their, like, main street. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of them also had their permanent fund checks that had been cashed in and spent. So maybe someone at that office. And then the other part that you brought up is that they're males.
1: Yeah. So I did look up so that dividend check is based on the oil wealth of Alaska. So each resident Ah. gets a certain set amount and it varies from year to year depending $1,114 was issued to 643,000 Alaskan residents. And that was based wow. on the dividends that the state of Alaska had received from their oil sales.
0: Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then there's also this really unfortunate twist in that there was a movie after this whole disappearances thing called A Fourth Kind. And it's one of those fake documentary things where they try and make it look like here's some real events, but like the real events are also fake. Real events. Okay. So they make it look like it's based on a, a true story. But really, the only part that's true is the missing people and not any of like the real sightings of UFOs and stuff like that.
1: They're not doing any service to the people that are missing or actually really trying are. to help them.
0: Yeah, they're they're screwing it up and saying that, oh, it's it's aliens. And I like to believe that there probably is, I mean, in the vast universe, there's got to be other life. Sure. I'm okay there's with that. somebody
1: smarter than us. There's someone got to be sure. Oh, fucking god.
0: <laughs> There's someone smarter than us. I'm okay with that. In the vast universe and in infinite universes, I'm okay with it. But to minimize the disappearances of these people by saying they were just taken by UFOs, yeah, that's is a little bullshit. bit much, and and it it really diminishes. The whole idea of of what I kind of started with, with the the fact that police are either overworked or they don't even know how to cover that much landmass. because there's also the whole Alaskan triangle, which is like the Bermuda triangle. Oh yeah, which is an even bigger area than just Nome, but like oh, we should a, ton that a ton of people in go missing there. Spooky season. Ooh yeah, that would be fun. With the notion that there are police officers that will hunt down indigenous because they are sick. Like these police officer that police officer at least that did that is sick and I can't imagine that he survived in that office, in that position for as long as he did without there being like minded individuals around. I
1: don't know. Honestly, if he's the only one willing to work that beat, if you will. Yeah. People are like, hey, if you're willing to do that, because like these are very outskirt areas right so you've got to have
0: someone who like really wants to be there and if like nobody else wants to be there but this dude i think he wanted to be there for the wrong reasons because it turned into an opportunity for hunting ground and extortion of the indigenous people that are there and it's it's sick he's this pompous fucking ass that's like mm-hmm. oh i'm the authority Authority in this, you yeah, know, in that's this the extortion area. part where, like, yeah. she definitely was preying on. And the other part too is that a lot of them have problems with alcohol and start from a very early age because Front Street notoriously will just sell to whoever wants to buy it, even if you're underage or don't have a license or what have you. And yeah, I kind of want to go to Front Street. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that's that's the shit show that is my oh my God. cold, cold cases for now.
1: 33 people
0: in 34 years, though. That's insane. In a town that has less than 4,000 people.
1: Right? And I don't know. I'm just a little bit interested, though, because a lot of the cases that you mentioned are males. Yeah. I mean, as sick as it sounds, but, like, females are generally the prey, if you will. Yeah, yeah. That's probably not politically correct, but on a Friday night and after two eight and a half percenters, I'm going to go
0: with that. Yep. That is the normal victim that you see in these sorts of situations. And I was writing down some of the ages and stuff. So you've got
1: like essentially like a 25 to a 70 year for males mm-hmm. and the majority. Well, 15
0: year old too. Oh, the yeah. The guy on the,
1: the kid on his bike. But even on average, though, you've got like I don't know, like pretty sturdy age for men, and yeah. they're like the bulk of it is pretty interesting. So you, I wonder if it's a female serial killer. Oh, oh my gosh! That has a foot fetish.
0: Oh no! I don't know. There was. Wouldn't just she this... take the shoes as a trophy? Then
1: I don't know. Maybe she took something else. I don't know. there socks.
0: Their laces. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. But then to, to find these locations too. Yeah. Like it's not like they're stranded there. Like they had ways to go. I don't, I don't know.
1: I didn't do astrology for my case. I'm assuming you didn't do astrology because there was so many people for yours. No.
0: Yeah. Fringing on the UFO thing was enough of the weirdness for me. I do have some upcoming
1: astrology for the week. Sweet. So... This episode is going to air on Monday, April 25th. On Wednesday, April 27th, Mercury in Taurus, so your communication in Taurus, is going to be sextile, which is that 60 degree aspect, with Jupiter in Pisces. Oh. And this is going to be a day to make major life decisions. Oh, no. <laughs> This aspect allows us to, like, trust our gut and make, like, a really sound plan for our future. The same day, right, Wednesday, okay. April 27th, Venus and Pisces is conjunct with Neptune and Pisces. We love our Pisces. Oh! And this is a day of inspiration and imagination. Ooh. And so it's going to bring about our unconditional feelings of love. The following day is Thursday, April 28th, and Mercury and Taurus is going to be trine. Woo-woo! Another trine! Right now we're kind of aligned, but we really love our trines. (laughs) And it's going to be in trine with Pluto and Capricorn, and we all know who our favorite Capricorn is. So this day... No. (laughs) Hannah, we miss you. (gasps) We do miss you, Hannah, but we hope we're living up to your Capricorn standards. We're trying, at least. This day is going to give us, like, some super, super stamina to make shit happen, which is very Hannah. Yeah. So on this day, on Thursday, you're going to want to visualize what you want and, like, go for it. So, like, make shit happen. This is going to be a very productive day.
0: I'm putting these in my calendar. So, to kind
1: of close out this episode, I want to bring a little bit more Capricorn energy because we have been missing our Hannah so much. So, because on Thursday you kind of get that, you know, that influx of Capricorn energy to, like, make shit happen, so we want you to make shit happen by connecting with us, especially, like, Ashburn, Virginia, and hey. our, our friends in australia and new zealand and then our friends in norway please reach out we would love to connect with you and any of our listeners really we want to hear from you we would love to send you some stickers so you can connect with us on twitter at true Trine. hit us up on instagram at true crime Trine, facebook or tct podcast email us we will chat with you Trying at gmail.com and then check out our website. It's www.truecrimetrying.com Send us your murder mittens. We would love to update our page murder for mentions. that. For a quote, this week has been kind of like a fucked week for us. Oh my god, yeah. Right. So I went with one of my favorites, Mel Brooks, who is very, very famous actor comedian, producer, writer, like, Mel Brooks. If you don't know who he is, look him up, and then, like, look up Men in Tights. That's probably one of my favorite (laughs) movies. Anyways, Mel Brooks says, quote, I have been accused of vulgarity. I say that's bullshit. End quote. (laughs) Lovely. And that is our bifurcated, Episode 54. Woo. Woo! Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.